Welcome to Founder Stories, the podcast, conversations with David Adelsheim and the 10 founding wine families of Oregon's North Willamette Valley. During each episode, David Adelsheim, founder of Adelsheim Vineyard, will sit down with another early pioneer to recount the collaboration and formation of the Willamette Valley wine industry over the last 50 years. In this episode, hear from Bill Blosser and Susan Sokolblosser as they sit down with David to recount their journey. Enjoy! In April 1971, a mutual friend introduced Ginny and me to Bill Blosser, who is a professor of planning at Portland State University. We met with him in his office and learned that he and his wife Susan had recently purchased property for a vineyard in the Dundee Hills. They invited us to their rented home at the foot of those hills for a memorable May Day party, where we were introduced to the fledgling wine community. David and Diana Lett of the Irie Vineyards were there too. We interviewed Susan and Bill one after another in the legacy lounge of their new tasting room at their original vineyard site on October 7th, 2020. Bill, thanks so much for agreeing to be part of this. We're looking to talk to you about the beginning of the wine industry, the thing that is much less accessible to people today because in the late 60s and early 70s, when we started, it was a different time, obviously. But I wanted to go back even before that, because you've told me that you wanted to grow things. And I was trying to figure out how a kid growing up in Oakland decided he wanted to grow things. You know, I don't know why. I just know that... From the time I was a little kid, I remember on Saturdays, our gardener always came on Saturdays, and I had nothing more that I wanted to do but to go and just sit and watch him do his thing. And uh, I always liked to putter around the garden. I had chickens and in Oakland? Um, in Oakland, yeah, we had a we had about an acre of land up in a canyon, and so I had chickens that got eventually eaten by whatever, rats or foxes or something. Then as I grew to be a preteen and a teenager, uh, I finagled ways to work on ranches and farms in the summer for a month or two. And uh, so I, I don't know, it just was something there that I can't explain and I don't know where it came from. And this certainly didn't come from your parents? No, it certainly didn't come from my parents. My father was a physician. My mother was a social worker. Um, there was farming way back in the family. I mean, his grandfather. But that it wasn't anything that... Uh, we, we, and we, we, no, there was... I don't know where it came from. And, and it's not... Your sister isn't a farmer. No, no, no. It, it was a, a, a unique, like a lightning strike that hit one person. <laughs> <laughs> Why grapes? I mean... Well, you know, during um, those times when I did... I had a little landscaping business, so I did... Wait, I, wait, 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 wait. In wait, Oakland. Wait. In Oakland, during high school, I had a little business where I, I did landscaping for people and in college. And I worked in a nursery during the school year. And then, as I said, in summers, I would work on ranches. And I I loved the nursery business to an extent, but there was nothing, none of those experiences captured me the, uh, the way 
it happened to me when I went to France. I was 19. I just took off for a year and went to France. And the first thing that struck me was wine at every meal in restaurants when I was studying in Paris. And then my hitchhiking on weekends out to vineyards and stuff, and I just saw all that, and I just said, wow. You know, it's a cultural thing together with food and agriculture, and it just um, started fermenting in my head that this was what I've been looking for. Did your family drink wine when you were growing up? No. They collected wine. And I say that facetiously because my father, as a physician, would often get gifts from his uh, patients at the end of the year, and often it would be a gift box of wine or a bottle of wine and a couple of glasses. And he did, the only thing that he knew what you were supposed to do with wine is it needed to be aged in the basement. So when we cleaned out his house some 25 years ago, 30 years later, there were all these gift boxes of completely rotten Palmasan Vin Rosé and things like that, things that needed to have been drunk within months. There wasn't a bottle that was worth drinking. Um, and so that was the extent of wine in my family. Um, uh, my father was a, a old-fashioned drinker, and, and that was it. Was there any contact with wine the first couple of years at Stanford, or did this all come out of the blue suddenly in France? Well, it came really came out of the blue in France. I mean, where, as, as you know from having lived there yourself, it's just a part of the life. I mean, you, uh, I worked uh, as a, uh, a wetback uh, dishwasher in a restaurant in a hotel, and uh, we got a, a liter of wine a day as part of, as our ration. Just as, you know, as the same way we got food, we each got a, a, a liter, which I never could finish because it was at 22% alcohol wine out of Algeria, uh, which I, I had to water down as, as they did too. Um, but it, it, you know, it just is, it became, it became part of me when I came back. So Susan made the comment that when we saw met each other in the, uh, the class at Stanford that I was... It seemed very French in my manner. Well, I really did absorb that in maybe a little snobbish way in many ways. Um, but it did really impact me a lot. So having been in a somewhat similar universe coming back from Europe, I wonder how that came to this. Okay. Well, what... What really happened was that I suddenly, at that time, this is, I came back from France in 1964, and that is the precise time that the whole U.S. wine industry started coming back alive. Mondavi built his new winery in 65, I think, and uh, Heights was just starting, and all those guys, uh, the Mandavi, the, uh, the uh, Peter Mandavi was reviving the CK Mandavi operation. So all that was happening, and there were articles coming out in magazines all over the country about wine is coming back in the United States um, after having you know died in prohibition, and so I was reading that and just lapping it up. 
And one particular article was in Esquire and named, had interviews with a lot of the new people that were starting out. Uh, Joe Heights was one, Robert Mondavi, of course. And then a, a guy, uh, Tony Hoosh, who was up in Philo. And when, we, when Susan and I got back to Oregon, the first thing I did was write him because he was an urban planner by background. So I thought, hey, I had to go talk to this guy for that reason. And the second reason was that he was up in the area where you could grow Pinot Noir. And that is, I came back, yeah, I yeah. came back from France with the idea in my mind, Pinot Noir was what I really Wait, wait, so we've, we've skipped over something here. How did that happen? Just because the wines that I ended up enjoying the most were Pinots. Yeah, I mean, you, you were never in Burgundy when you were in I France. was in Dijon and uh, hitchhiked through Burgundy. I, was, I actually spent a few weekends in Champagne area. But no, I never went to Burgundy per se. But the wines that were available most in the area in Paris where I was were, were Burgundies. And uh, in Dijon, it was all Burgundy or Rhone, yeah. but a lot of Burgundy. Was there in Paris in 64, 63, 64, when you were there, when you went in and you ordered a glass of wine, was the basic choice Bordeaux or Burgundy? Or was wow. it not that simple? I don't remember anymore. Yeah. Um, I just remember getting a carafe of house wine and when I asked what it was, it was mostly always a, a Burgundy or maybe a Northern Rhone. Um, I don't. I don't remember ever. Being, I don't. It doesn't stick in my mind that there was ever a, a Bordeaux, but there may have been. It just seemed like it was. It was Burgundy. But by the time you left France, you knew what Pinot Noir was. Yeah. And you thought of that as a grape that was right. important to you. And uh, at least the beginning of, of that thought, the, big, the other big thing that really sealed the deal was when Susan and I got married in 66 and I got introduced to her father's cellar, <laughs> um, that was a real awakening because he um, was one of the original wine nuts in the United States with a wonderful cellar. And he had, a, as Susan said, a great Burgundy collection. And so I had an opportunity to taste way better than the carafe wines that yeah. I was used to right. in, in France. And that had a big impact on me too. And he had great Bordeaux and I liked them, but I didn't like them as much as I liked Pinot. So going back to the Tony Hush thing, yeah. I was already kind of thinking in very very heavily in that direction. I went down and saw Tony, uh, who was two years into planting himself, I and mean, he hadn't produced a drop of wine yet. Um, and we became friends um, and corresponded after that, but I never actually saw him again until he died. Um, but. Uh, I came back up, up to Oregon where we were living late 1970, the fall of 70, uh, just before Nick was born. And um, then the experience happened that Susan related of us going, deciding to, we had weekends free, let's drive around and see if there's anything here. Somehow I had read that uh, Oregon had a wine industry uh, during or prior to Prohibition and that it had died out. So I, I kind of 
had the thought that mm, maybe you could do something here. Um, and then we had the experience in the realtor where we met F Gary Fuquay and then met da Dave, I mean, uh, um, Dickie Rath. Uh, and that completely sealed the deal. I mean, it was, as Susan said, it was way less expensive here. It was an adventure. We didn't have hardly any money, so... And, and you also, could keep working? I kept working. Yeah. And uh, we felt immediate camaraderie with this bunch of crazy people who were going to try and grow grapes in Oregon. It just felt right. You were initially just going to grow grapes, right? When you bought the property. But it sounds like your father-in-law had other visions. He did. Um, Yes, my first thought was, as I talked about, my passion was the agricultural side, and that's where I came to the whole industry from. And my, I remember my father-in-law fairly early after we started planting. He showed a lot of interest, uh, but stayed in the background. And, and then three or four years after we planted, he said, well, you need more land. You can't just have 18 acres. Um, and so he helped us purchase some more land. And then he started saying, well, we can't just have grapes. We've, we've got to make wine too. I mean, what's this all about? <laughs> we've got to have, we've got to make our own wine. Um, so I was a home winemaker uh, through all that period, but I never thought I was a great home winemaker, and I also felt that it wasn't really my thing in the same way that the, the vineyard side of it was, or business management was. I really enjoyed running businesses. Um, so from the beginning, when Gus started saying, let's, get, let's talk about a winery, I said, well, we need to then talk about a winemaker and hiring a winemaker. So that's what we did. Um, and it worked out really well. We, um, you know, I was around the winery, I worked in the winery, and I read a lot of winemaking books, and so I knew what was going on pretty much, but I, I was not the chemist and the detailed person to do the, the lab work and all that. And um, so uh, it was a really great partnership to have um, Bob McRitchie, who was our first winemaker. But, um, and but, but I never could figure out how a winery in Oregon in the mid-'80s could attract a winemaking talent from California. You know, it was surprising to me when we started looking for winemakers that there were... Oregon had already gotten some... Recognition. I don't know whether it was because uh, Dave Lett and Chuck Curry were such good emissaries back to Davis and got the people, Amarine and Omo and all those people interested. Um, but when I started to advertise and look for winemakers, I had four or five or six good applications from people who were as crazy as we were, who were willing to move up here. And... How they had heard about it, I don't know. And they were also, they wanted to make their mark in Pinot Noir because they knew uh, that Pinot Noir just had not really proven itself in the United States. And it was one of the great wine grapes of the world. And 
it appeared maybe maybe Chuck's uh, master's thing had gotten circulated down there, where he studied cold uh, the climate and where ideal places would be to grow Pinot Noir in the United States. Uh, maybe that got around, but anyway, it was not like a foreign thought to adventurous people wow. to say, "Yeah, I'll go to Oregon." That's amazing. It was. It was totally, totally amazing. Yeah, I'm, I, I mean, Bob was, once I met him, I, he became my go-to. I mean, I was starting off making wine with um, my own, having done a vintage in Burgundy and having worked for David Lett for a vintage, but I had no idea where I was going. And I made a lot of trips over here, and Bob helped me an awful lot uh, understand what I needed to do next, in essence. Yeah, he was uh, a wonderful ambassador um, and a wonderful person. Um, and that was just his nature. Um, the other thing that Bob brought was, as Bill Fuller brought too when he came a little bit later, um, the contacts back into the California industry. Because he was able to call on people, send samples down to labs and wineries in California and get things analyzed that we didn't have the ability to do up here. And also he had the contacts into equipment dealers and uh, for winery equipment and um, that yeah. we would have had to learn from scratch. Um, well, and there was nothing here, so there was nothing that was here. the only place you could right. buy anything. Yeah. But the him coming here and then Bill Fuller, they they, well, yeah, they, they had been in the industry a long time. They knew we'll go here, we go here, we know. The picture, the sort of way wide-angle lens picture of Sokolblaser is incredible changes over the years. I mean, winemaker finally ended up in, in the genetic family after four tries or five tries. But vineyard management over the years moved. But ownership, I mean, they're... Uh, I don't even mean all the specifics of vineyard ownership or the winery ownership, but just going from Susan's family and you to two other grape growers and you to eventually being family. I mean, it's a it's a huge success story, um, but it could not have been an easy story. I think back on it, it is a unique thing, although there have been many, uh, in other winners, there have been changes in ownership. Um, but we started out really driven by Gus Sokol's vision and his money. He was, he was what enabled us to finance buying land and starting a winery. And he was also a, a big thinker and felt that we shouldn't start with a little winery in the back of a garage. We had to start with a real operation. So we built a, a pretty significant winery building. We, he also pushed us to hire somebody that would look at the big picture of how you could be 
profitable, we had hoped, as a winery. Um, and that was hiring Bruce Johnson, then was Sterling um, as a marketing guru to help us figure out. Was it, was it marketing in the pure sense, or did that include sales? Or? Sales, logos, um, the whole thing about it. Uh, he, he created the first spreadsheet for five-year projection of sales. And he's the one who drove us to, he said, you have to have a tasting room. So we built the first uh, tasting room, as per se, as a tasting room in, the, in, in Oregon. Um, but that required a winery of a certain size, which meant Gus's investment. And that's where I was kind of go with this, is that we did have a significant investment from Gus, but then he passed away and the ownership was left with Susan and her three brothers, who really didn't have that much interest. So uh, we spent a good amount of time trying to figure out how to help them get out of the industry. And we didn't have the money, um, personally. Um, so that's where we brought in Highland and Durant. And they became uh, owners of half the winery. Uh, we still held all of our own vineyards, but they uh, owned half the winery. And that lasted for 10 or 15 years. And I think they, as well as we, always had the thought that if we could figure out a way for us to eventually buy them out, that would be the best thing. And they were very amicable and supportive, and they gave us a really good deal in terms of uh, time to pay them pay them off. Um, and we parted very amicably, and we still we bought we continued to buy grapes from them. Um, so we were able to eventually bring it back into the family, um, which has been a great thing for us. So now uh, our three kids and us. Um, Try and make a go of it together. Well, I, I'm just flat out congratulations, even if it's long since in the past. That is not the typical joint venture story. Usually the money is in the position to end up having to take over the company, not necessarily the people that whose passion drove the, the founding of it. So... It's a, it's a pretty wonderful story. Well, I think we had, you know, Susan's brothers were, were wanted us to have it. I mean, you know, we, they knew that our passion was, and Gus's was started, and they didn't want to ruin us. They wanted to figure out a way for us to keep going. And uh, Highland and Durant wanted the same thing. Yeah. Uh, so we were lucky in that regard. A lot of my memories of working with you have to do with the planning process. Uh, obviously, that was what you got your master's degree in. That's what you were doing for a living. When we first met, met you, you were teaching at Portland State, in the planning department. Right. The story obviously needs to go to Yamhill County and the uh, 1974 process that you were involved in and I think were in many ways the co-spiritual leader of, of, of designating all the hillsides in Yamhill County uh, for ag use, not relegating them to agricultural residency or, or even development as happened in many other counties. Do you remember a first conversation with Craig Greenleaf, the planning director? Wow. 
No, I couldn't say I do. What I, the thing that I remember was when Senate Bill 100 passed right. and made a, requ- required. made a requirement yeah, that the counties really redo their comprehensive plans entirely and designate uh, prime agricultural land. And they could only designate a certain amount of ur- urban land. In and they had to have a boundary. And they had it. to have an urban growth boundary around cities. Uh, but rural residential land was not part of the deal in Senate Bill 100. It either was going to be urban land around towns and cities, or it was going to be... Um, Ag land, and so they had to figure out. Okay, what are we going to do with all this land that we've we've heretofore zoned as rural, residential, five acre, ten acre plots in the hills? And so I was working in urban planning at that time, and it was um, uh, an obvious thing for me to jump into on behalf of the industry. And I don't know how it happened that you and I got going in it, but... Well, I was, I was certainly not part of the initial thing. I think that somehow you and Craig Greenleaf figured out that this was an opportunity. Right. Yeah, Craig... Um, and I don't remember those first conversations. Yeah. I, I really don't. I just remember going into the county and saying, okay, well, you guys, what are you going to do? And they said, we don't know. And nobody knew, really. And... Uh, so I kind of went home and started thinking about how we could uh, create a, uh, a model or a, uh, an overlay for uh, defining good grape land. And that's somehow how you and I got yeah, into it, because you had mapping skills. I don't and, know that I had mapping skills. Well, yeah. or interests. You had yeah, mapping yeah, You yeah. like maps. And, and so we uh, started... Uh, listing the criteria for for prime grape land, uh, elevation, soils, slope, exposure being the prime ones. And then it was fairly straightforward to map, draw those lines a lot on, of circles uh, around these places on, yeah. on areas in Yamhill County. And then uh, we, the Thousand Friends of Oregon, which was a land use advocacy group at that time, Pushed. I remember them pushing to, well, let's expand this to the whole valley. Um, let's not just make this Yamhill County. Why don't we, we? We're concerned about areas much broader than just Yamhill County. So we expanded it to Washington County and Polk and Benton and on down the valley. And so that little bit of work that we did here in Yamhill County became the model for the whole Willamette Valley. I had never heard that. I had always thought that Washington County was not as strict about this and had, like, where our vineyard is, the south side is Yamil County, the north side is Washington County. South side, there are no developments. A couple of people have tried stuff, but basically no developments. The north side... There are five-acre houses everywhere. Washington County fought it heavily, um, as did some of the counties in Southern Oregon. Um, And Yamhill County at that time was a unique in that our county commissioners were 
were farmers and other people who, for whatever reason, were interested in preserving They were not home developers. They weren't home developers. Whereas Washington County was heavily driven by development even then. And so, yes, they fought it. And there were a lot of the early lawsuits, uh, land use lawsuits, were in Washington County trying to force them to zone prime uh, uh, farmland. And uh, the Farm Bureau Federation of Washington County was very strong in promoting that, together with a thousand friends of Oregon. Um, But yeah, that's what you see on the north side of Chehalem Mountains is absolutely Washington County fighting tooth and nail to to do exactly what you said. Wow, interesting. The the other the the piece of this that you didn't mention was that at that time Yamhill County had planning advisory committees. Right. I think four or five yes. scattered around the county. Right. And I know I appeared before three or four mm-hmm. of them. Perhaps you did too. Um, Maybe Erath did. I can't remember who. Yes, at least the three of us I know went around yeah. to those planning advisory committees, and we we basically have to explain why we thought it would be a good idea exactly. that hillsides be designated for agricultural right. use. And then I had the luck, and I can't remember the exact year, but it was around the time that was important for all this. Uh, I think it was Craig Greenleaf uh, promoted, appointing me to the, the planning commission, so I got to be there when we adopted the, the plan changes. Oh. And I stayed on the planning commission there for six or eight years um, as we were uh, solidifying that. Okay. Were there other aspects of your planning background that, or other aspects of the industry that your planning background came in useful? Well, the only part that I would say was that the, a lot of the planning training that I had was around the fact that planning in in the United States was not a a traditional thing that was done very much. Land use planning was not something. And so you needed to learn how to work the political system and persuade people that this is how, this was better for them than the alternative. And so there was a lot of sort of political science training around working with legislatures and elected officials to get what you wanted. So it was natural for me from that training to get involved with all of our legislative stuff um, that we, that the industry got involved in very early with trying to pass laws in the legislature and make uh, make the whole uh, legal system more uh, amenable to a wine industry, tasting rooms, for example, and doing tastings at uh, wine festivals and all kinds of things like that, plus the labeling regulations that were critical. So I was from the very early involved in all that legislative stuff, which was a natural outgrowth of the planning background. But you still had trouble when you applied for a winery license. Oh, yes. We found out, to our surprise, that we had chosen a spot that was uh, surrounded by um, people who were against any alcohol. And uh, 
when we had our vineyards, nobody said anything, and we didn't really even know the people hardly. But when we went to apply for a winery, they really came out of the woodwork and mobilized. And so we had petitions against us to our total surprise. And uh, we uh, had a, a difficult time in the planning commission getting the the winery license, or the, the land use des designation for the winery. Um, although in the end it was, uh, there was almost no opposition on the planning commission. They actually, I think it was, might have been unanimous. Uh, because what we were proposing was totally in line with the, the land use plan and with the law and... Um, the goals of Senate Bill yeah, 100. The, the goals and everything. But we, we found this uh, nexus of people who were very unhappy. Um, and uh, we at the time, interestingly enough, had a, a housekeeper who was from that same religious background that those folks were from. And so she gave us some very early advice. She said, these are good people. They're just really worried. And so you don't turn your back on them. You gotta go talk to them and do what you can to try and overcome this. So over the years, um, we've lived very amicably. And in fact, um, one of the um, the chief uh, opponent of all of our, uh, of our winery, now had some legal problems and he has to use our, our uh, road in order to get to his house uh, because his other access got cut off and we let him do it. So things have worked out. prevented you from having a winery because today you can if you have 15 acres of grapes or actually less you can build a winery and produce right. a certain amount of wine right. and it's a permitted use right. in an ag zone but nobody thought of that then right it was not an outright permitted use it, you had to get an actually you had to get an industrial zone this five acres that we sit on here is it zoned uh uh, industrial, ag, ag industrial, yeah. um, and certainly after that they figured out that's this is ridiculous. So they created a winery, a zoning that involved wineries, and eventually, as you said, if you have a certain number of acres of grapes, you automatically can have a winery. Yeah. Um, but at that time, yeah, there it was. We were worried, and we were. They did appeal it to uh, Luba, the land use. Uh, uh, Board of Appeals, and uh, but we didn't win. So we we actually had to, you know, bite the the bullet and start excavating the winery before that lawsuit was finalized, because we had a crush going to happen in 1977, and so we had to actually start the excavation before uh, we were certain that we were going to be able to actually build a winery. Of the founding families and those that came soon after that, which were the people that you were close to and that you ended up having to work with or enjoyed working with? What? Well, thinking back on that, I think the, the, my closest friend was Vic Crymeyer. 
who was uh, one of the four owners of Highland Vineyards. And we just, like happens with a lot of people, we just struck it off and we were just, I just, uh, he was sort of a mentor for me and just a- yeah, He's got to have been 20 something years 20, older. 20, 25 years older, yeah. And he's passed away now, but um, I just really enjoyed him. We, I, we didn't do that much socially, but I just, he was a good advisor and he was the, uh, the Highland uh, Vineyards designation, designee on our board of directors. And so I got to work with him for that roughly 10 years that they were owners. Um, and um, so that was an important relationship to me. Then certainly my relationship with you has always been one of the ones I've, the warmest ones and ones I've been fondest of. Um, Dick Erath was a great mentor and uh, friend, and you know, we we had a little business together with a small uh, uh, greenhouse operation early on, but only for a year or two. Um, but I, you know, he, uh, I would go up there and just hang out and learn from him, particularly on the vineyard things. He was just a fount of knowledge about vineyards and clones and grapes and sprays and everything. I was never really that close to either Lett, who's my next door neighbor, or Corey, um, who was you know quite a ways away. I always was had a good time with Bill Fuller and really enjoyed being around him and with him. What happened to the kid that wanted to grow things? He lived his dream. Um, and has for the till uh, now I'm 76, and so it's it's been going on now for 50 years, uh, more than that. Um, 1970, we bought the property, and 72, we were planning. And I still love the vineyards. You know, t- this morning uh, for the first time in, I tried to figure out how long. It's probably 45 years. I actually was out picking this morning. The whole uh, second and third generation, we decided to do a picking day. And so I was picking with uh, six of my grandchildren and my three kids. And uh, our regular crew, I think they were quite amused to see that (laughs) we we called ourselves the gringo crew. (laughs) And uh, we... We acquitted ourselves. We looked like we we knew how to pick. Um, nobody cut their fingers off. Nobody cut their. Everybody started with ten and ended with ten. That was nice. our motto: start nice. with ten and end with ten. So it's been a great ride, um, and uh, I'm really glad we got into the winery. It's been. It was. It, it, it took a lot longer to be profitable than we thought it was going to be. You know, our projection from uh, Bruce Johnson's early. Uh, P&L projections would be that we would be profitable within five years, and it took us more like 20 to be solidly profitable. I mean, we were uh, we, we would have a positive cash flow every year, but depreciation and everything, we would ended up, quote-unquote, losing money. Um, but once we finally figured, out, figured it out, and the whole industry grew to the point where we all jointly figured it out and started making way better wine than we made the, at the beginning, we've been able to pay our bills and and we've been graced by the, the luck that two of our kids wanted to run the business full time and didn't get scared away because um, they um, they all had to work in the vineyards and the winery when they were young and I always imagined that it would drive them away rather than make them love it but 
they ended up loving it. So we're very lucky. Yeah. Well, this has been fun for me. I, I've learned a, a, a number of things that I have no idea about to begin with. And more importantly, with you living in Sonoma at least part of the year, I don't get to see you as much as we used to. Yes. So this is uh, very fun for me, and I really appreciate it. Well, this is an extraordinary opportunity for me, too, and it's fun to catch up with you and and uh, just have a chance to reminisce about these. Yeah. Well, it was, it was the formative time for us as people, but obviously for an entire industry. You've got two bottles in front of you, which are really pretty historic. Yeah, this is the 78, our first vintage was 77. Right. This 78 Pinot was the first one that ever got any awards for us. Um, and was the first, the 77 Pinot, we just really were learning. I mean, 78, we started to figure out how to make Pinot. And, we, and um, then by 83 and 85, when those vintages came along and we, we had those tastings against Burgundies and did very well, we started to feel like m m the grapes do grow here. <laughs> With that, we were, we were finally convinced of. And maybe we can make some good wines. Mm -hmm. I don't know, what, what's the other one? It's, oh, it's the, the same, same, I think. same yeah. 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 Um, so this was the first vintage of Pinot that... Um, Really said to me, yes, we can, we this, can do this. This wasn't folly entirely. It wasn't folly entirely that yeah. we can, we can make some good wines. Thanks, Bill. Thank you. This, by the way, was the grapes that we were harvesting this morning. Yeah. That's that's extremely fast winemaking. That's yes, incredible. I know. <laughs> well, we have this special technique back there. Yeah. So two years from now, we'll see if if the this is good as this one. We'll see. Thank you for listening to Founder Stories, the podcast. This episode was produced by Adelsheim Vineyard in partnership with House Below Productions. New episodes are released monthly, and you can find them on Stitcher, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. Visit our website, adelsheim.com slash 50 years, to watch full interviews of David Adelsheim with the other founders of the Willamette Valley wine industry. And join us as we pay homage to half a century of lofty dreams, pioneering spirits, and world-class wine.